0: Hello everyone, great to see you again. Kathy asked me to especially thank you for sending uh, all your cards and encouragement at the passing of her mother. Um, The service uh, occurred while I was in Israel, it's an interesting bit of God's providence as we had prayed for many months, actually a couple years, and then uh, Kathy's mom dies literally the day I get into Israel. So it was a strange bit of providence, but we trust the Lord's timing with it all. And um, I'm grateful, and Kathy's grateful for your encouragement and support. Context is everything. turns out there's not a lot of context these days where you can wear a coat and tie. If you doubt that, um, wear a coat and tie through a drive-through. Of course, I'm talking to the men. you ladies if you want to do it that's an even more unusual context but a couple of times like even just this morning I drove through a coffee shop drive through and the, the young gal that was handing me my coffee saw me in my coat and tie and she said oh are you going to work <laughs> I said no actually I'm going to church she went oh well that's nice <laughs> what do you say? That was definitely out of context for her. Another time we drove through a drive-thru, and Kathy and I were both all dolled out. And um, the, the drive-thru, I think this was a Chick-fil-A, they were, I mean, this, this gal was just all bubbly and happy, and she says, And why are y'all dressed up so beautiful today? And I said, Well, um, we just left a funeral. She went, Oh. <laughs> I mean, just deflated her. I didn't mean to deflate her, but what was I going to say? We just left a party. <laughs> no. Context is everything. Well, I had a real lesson in context in Israel this time around. It's amazing as many times as you go there, the cultural faux pas that you, that you experience. Some of the funnest are those who are there for the first time and don't re- realize some of the things like you know the, the, the sign for men's room and women's room, what those look like. But another is uh, simple things like the buffet line at the hotel. I walk up to the buffet line and they have I mean just it's just shameful the just this spread of food. It's like I picture this is what the kingdom of God is gonna look like. You know, just every dessert is just one bite. So you can have like ten of them. So it's it's just magnificent. But anyway, walking up and there are cakes lined up right here. And then over here on the left side is just all these different kinds of bread, cakes and and then right beside the cakes there was this white square looking stuff. And it's been a long time since I've had any divinity. And I thought, that looks really good. So I, you know, I kinda got some and stuck it on my plate. And I'm one of those guys that gets dessert while I'm getting my main meal. Because then you don't have to get up again, and someone might get what you want. <laughs> so you just get it right there at the beginning. So I'm sitting down with you know, my five plates of food and my divinity over there, and I finished my meal and now I'm ready for the divinity and I pull it over, you know, and I kinda cut it in half and plop it in. It tasted like wax and, and like lard and just like eating Crisco. And the guy sitting next to me, I I, I think I said out loud, what in the world is this? And the guy sitting next to me literally said, I wondered if you were going to put that butter in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I wonder why you didn't tell me then. (laughs) Turns out, I walked back over there to find out what in the world is butter doing by cakes and someone had scooted the butter over by the cakes, and it really should have been over by the bread. Context is everything. If, the, if this little white thing had been over by the bread, it would have all been fine. Obviously, it's butter. But when you put it over by the desserts, now it looks like divinity. So next time you're at a, a, a hotel and you see something that looks like divinity, check, because you could be eating butter. Butter. Burr. putting butter in your mouth is better i guess than putting your foot in it <laughs> years ago in greek class in seminary we had a it was one of my very first greek classes in seminary it was uh, very i mean people come from all over the world and we had a blind student in the class this woman, this uh, older woman who was just a delight. She sat right in the front, and I was always amazed at how she could, with her limitation, go as fast as the rest of us were having to go and learning Greek. And our professor was kind of a young guy, and he was full of juice, and he was all excited about the Greek language. And he, at one, at one point, he got so excited about, I don't know, some participle or something, he was telling us all about it. And he says, it's just right there in the text. He said, you'd have to be blind not to see it. <laughs> and, at, and about two seconds after he said that, he went and turned and looked at that blind student with just horror to see if she had reacted. She had no reaction. She just calm. And finally, it was quiet, and she just said, That's okay, son. Keep going. (laughs) Oh, I'll never forget that. I think that's my biggest takeaway from that Greek class. I still see the look on his face. Saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Talk about a royally wrong response. I know I've got tons of stories here, but I'm kind of front-loading this with uh, illustrations to kind of, you know, draw you in. I remember... (laughs) (laughs) Once my daughter, our daughter, after our dog, Sam, had died, precious dog, been with us 12 years, Labrador, you know, Labrador has just become a heart part of your family. Well, you know, Kathy and the girls were away visiting Kathy's family in East Texas, and Sam died uh, while I was home alone, so I found her, I had to deal with it all, and I actually had buried her. Well, Kathy and the girls got home, of course, I told Kathy already, but the girls we hadn't told yet. And so we sat him down and said, uh, "Girls, we need to tell you that, you know, our, our Sammy's now dead." Well, our older daughter just lit up. She said, "Can we get a goldfish?" <laughs> we expect this from children, and this is why we laugh. But we don't expect this from ourselves. When we say dumb things, when we give a royally wrong response, um, there ain't no going back. How many times do we wish, husbands, that we could just back up time 10 seconds and take back what we just said? Well, when we look at King Solomon... We see a man who literally wrote the book on wisdom. And Solomon, initially, in his reign, did a whole lot well. A whole lot well. Uh, of course, he was the wisest man, other than the Lord Jesus, to ever walk the face of the earth. And, uh, but, it, but even with all his wisdom, he still had some major flaws. And I don't mean toward the end of his reign where the, his flaws were obvious. I mean right at the beginning where his, his flaws were subtle. Like, if we were to read, you don't have to turn there, but if we were to read in First Kings 4, we would see his his administrative deputies that were assigned to various people all throughout, various places all throughout the uh, land of Israel. And what they basically did was a deputy was responsible for, for providing the king for the king's household for a month. He basically was responsible for taxing the people. But if you were to read that chapter carefully, you would see that everybody got taxed except Judah. Judah didn't get taxed. This was Solomon's tribe. How do you make how do you think the other tribes felt about that? Well, nothing is said. I mean, cuz after all, we everybody's doing well, everybody's rich, the economy's great. So we'll kind of let that slide. But nobody liked it. Um, Solomon's preferential treatment of the tribes really watered bitterness, and after 40 years it came to a head, um, having this kind of a uh, inference or interest in personal family preference is sort of a, a, what's a, a kinder way to say it than nepotism. My, def, my dictionary defines nepotism this way. It's the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives or friends nepotism. We've seen this in our own country, haven't we? I don't mean recently, though certainly we've seen it recently. We see it all throughout. But we also saw it even back in the 1700s when the American colonies deeply resented taxation without representation. That is, we've got to pay taxes, but we don't get to speak into what the laws that affect us. We don't have anybody representing us in uh, England. We pay taxes, but no one speaks for us. In fact, they called it tyranny. And, of course, this is part of what started the American Revolution. Solomon did this. Solomon had taxes that were unfair, that he taxed everybody but his own people. And this put a wedge between Judah and the the northern tribes. Solomon's nepotism also extended to his wives, remember, because eventually he preferred his wives to the Bible and that he deferred to them and to their gods as opposed to to saying, no, honey, I'm not gonna build you that pagan temple. Instead, he said, sure, honey, I'll be glad to build you that pagan temple. Solomon's root problem was favoritism, bias, and partiality. Well, finally, the tension between the 12 tribes came to a head in Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 and look at a royally wrong response. This man, Rehoboam, had his foot in his mouth most of this chapter, especially when we get down to the apex of it. Think about it where did Solomon learn his nepotism? He learned it from his dad, from David. David was a man after God's own heart, and when confronted, David often, if not always, responded well. David did not always do well, but when confronted, he responded well. When he was rebuked, he didn't bow up and say, hey, we're going to do it anyway. He humbled himself. In fact, if you think about the instance when David's nepotism was in full froth, It was when, during Absalom's rebellion, when David left town instead of facing Absalom. He should have faced Absalom, but he didn't. He left town, so he wouldn't have to hurt his son. And then when it came to the fact that he was going to have to have a battle, he told Joab, be gentle with Absalom for my sake. Well, Absalom gets killed, and David's heart is just broken, and he weeps, and Joab goes up to David. And in a moment of rare wisdom, which you don't often see with Joab, Joab tells him, look, you're treating, if, if Absalom was alive and the rest of the, all of the rest of us were dead, then you'd be happy. He says, if you don't let your servants know that you appreciate them, there will be nobody here to stand with you by morning. And with that little bit of wisdom, David responded well. But it was nepotism that kept David uh, not seeing clearly. Same was true with David's son Solomon. How would Solomon's son Rehoboam respond? 1 Kings 12, 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to start a new series in which we're going to look at 10 handpicked kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles for a couple of reasons. Mainly, the first one is that uh, this is a section of the Bible that we don't know a lot about. I mean, how many of us could give life application from Asa and Josiah and Jehoshaphat? I mean, these are names that we might know, but it's like, what difference do these people make in our lives? It's a good question. They're not just there in the Bible to add thickness to the the book. They're there to give life application to us. They seem distant. You know, they're kings. We're not. They spoke Hebrew. We don't. They were in a foreign country, not America. I mean, everything is different about them except the fact that what they struggled with is what we struggle with. So, 1 Kings 12, the context again is Solomon has just died, and now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is about to be made king. Look at verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. We'll devote next week to Rehoboam. I'm sorry to Jeroboam, but today we're talking about Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was Solomon's servant who the Lord had risen up against Solomon. Jeroboam fled to Egypt. We're told this in verse 2, and if we were to to have read earlier in 1 Kings, we would see the details of the story. So just kind of take Jeroboam as a person and set him on the shelf for now. Rehoboam is our focus, and we're told specifically, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Why Shechem? What's the big deal about mentioning Shechem? It was a very significant place in Israel's history. The very first place that we're told that Abraham came to the land when he came to the land was Shechem. In uh, Genesis chapter 12. Then Jacob also toward the about the middle toward the end of Genesis came to Shechem after he came back from Padan Aram and he actually bought some land there in Shechem that became Jacob's well where Jesus would later come to that very same area and have a significant conversation with the woman at the well. Joshua also went to Shechem at the very beginning of the conquest. He took all the 12 tribes there, half stood on Mount Gerizim, half stood on Mount Ebal, and they shouted the blessings and the curses with Shechem in the valley of these two mountains. Then at the end of the conquest, Joshua comes again to Shechem to rededicate their, um, their love for the Lord. So Shechem was huge in the history of Israel, and it was just sort of like all of us, in a sense, you know, going to, well, it's like what we do when we go to Washington to, to swear in a new president. It was a significant place, and this is what they did with Shechem. They went to Shechem to make, um, to make Rehoboam king. That was the goal. But there was still that tribal tension. Remember what Solomon had done? Tribal tension was still there. They're willing to to be peaceful. They're willing to follow Rehoboam, but they had some conditions. Look at verse 3. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father, Solomon, made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. The northern tribes were the money-making tribes, and Solomon exploited that. The northern tribes were also the one that were taxed heavily, as we've said, and they bring this up. They say, Your father made our yoke hard. He said, Now lighten up, and we'll be glad to confirm you as king. Well, Rehoboam says, give me three days to think about it, basically. That's what he said in verse 5. And look at how he responds now in verse 6. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these pe- this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition... And speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants forever. What great counsel. Rehoboam first asked for some time, and he seeks the wisdom of these elders during the time of Solomon. And what they say is pristine wisdom. Be a servant to these people, and then they repeat it. Serve them, lighten their load. Speak good words to them, and here's what will happen. They'll serve you. They will let you be king. It sounds familiar because this is exactly what Joab told David two generations prior. Come out and speak kindly to your servants. And then the, the implication then is, if you don't, they will not follow you. No one will stand with you. I heard about a group of monks at a remote monastery... Who followed a rigid vow of silence They could only speak one time a year On Christmas And only one monk at a time So they had to take turns How'd you like that? There's ten monks, you can't say anything But once every ten years So the first Christmas Brother Thomas had his turn to speak He stands up and say I just want to say I love the delightful mashed potatoes That we have every year on Christmas And he sits down and then 365 days of silence. The next Christmas comes by. Brother Michael stands up and he says, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I don't like them. <laughs> Another whole year of silence. Following Christmas, Brother Paul stands up and says, I am sick of this constant bickering. <laughs> oh, boy. They had a whole year to think about what they were going to say. Rehoboam only had three days. Lloyd Corey is quoted as saying, Peace is the brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. (laughs) I also read that after the Civil War, there was a hot-blooded group of former rebels they gained an audience with President Lincoln, came in and were ready to just let Lincoln have it. But uh, his, you know, good nature, friendly, gentle manner won them over. And they left with respect for their old foe. There was a congressman, a northern congressman, heard about this and came to Lincoln and said, Why? Why did you give an audience to our enemies? You should have lined them up and all been shot. You shot, shot them for the traitors that they are. And Lincoln said, I love this response. He said, am I not destroying my enemies by making them my friends? You see, Lincoln understood what Rehoboam's elders understood and what you and I should understand during a time of potential conflict where all it takes is one little match in the counterpeg powder keg, and everything is going to go up. There's a principle we can pull from this text and then apply to our lives. Simply our truly selfless acts offer the greatest potential for peace. Our truly selfless acts offer the greatest potential for peace, and the word their potential is essential because it's not a promise, but the greatest potential for peace comes from our truly selfless selfless acts. Be a servant The elders said, Be a servant, serve them, speak good words to them. Let your actions and your words be good, and lighten their load. This whole tax thing that Solomon did, let's stop that. Lighten their load. It's wonderful how when this principle is applied in the business world, we find it favorable. I read that the Ritz-Carlton Hotels did some extensive studies to figure out 18 key things that kept customers coming back, and they hired a process manager for every hotel to figure it out, and no big surprise, companies with good service know that it happens at the ordinary points of contact, you know, the doorman, the, the waitresses, the, these ordinary points of contact. Kathy and I went to dinner this week at a local restaurant. And who knows, the waitress may have been having a bad day or whatever, but she walked up, and I kid you not, she basically just said, take your order. We just, you know, tried to be as gracious and as kind as we could because she clearly had not read what the Ritz-Carlton had, <laughs> had discovered. The ordinary point of contact went south real fast. It's the same in our relationships. If we walk around with the attitude in our homes, you know, take your order, that type of thing. You know, that's not how you win friends and influence people. If you got a potential conflict at your workplace or with your in-laws or in your marriage or with your kids or with your parents, the Bible says you don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. The Proverbs say a gentle answer can break a bone. There is power in grace And in a graceful spirit, our selfless acts are what make amends, not selfish demands. Is this hard? Absolutely it's hard. There is nothing harder, except maybe living with the results of not doing it. Rehoboam's elders giving him the same advice Joab had given David. It was the same advice that his father Solomon had actually written. Listen to Proverbs 15, verse 1. Solomon writes, A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Try that next time somebody tries to stir up anger at you. Respond gently. They will be shocked. They will be shocked. So what did he do? He chose a royally wrong response. Look at verse eight. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we, that we may answer this people? Notice he says, "We That we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, Lighten the load which your Father put on us. The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your Father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my Father's loins. Whereas my Father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My Father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." A scorpion doesn't mean the little thing that crawls around here in Texas. It's, uh, it's a whip that has spikes on it. So it's like they're basically saying, you go back to Shechem and you thump your chest. You let them know who's boss. The northern kingdom had said, lighten our load. Well, and these boys that grew up with Rehoboam give terrible, terrible counsel. Um, So notice what happens now, verse 12, (laughs) Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord had spoken through Ahijah, the Shilonite, the Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam couldn't have gone very far in that Dale Carnegie course winning friends, and influencing people, unless he was trying to get someone to incite war. It's no small wonder that the northern tribes said, we're done. If this is your view, we're out of here. Look at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what portion do we have in David We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Here you have the nation of Israel splitting. Now there are two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Judah and actually the tribe of Benjamin will stay with Judah. You had ten in the north and two in the south, and there was a rivalry all throughout. The rest from here on in the books, book of First and Second Kings, you see these two nations butting heads with each other, and it's all because of Solomon and because of Rehoboam's bad, bad choice here at Shechem that day. He tossed a match in that powder cake of these tribes, and instead of being gracious, the whole thing blew up. I think the terrible lesson here for us is that when we're faced with potential hostility, um, to intimidate people rather than to ingratiate them is a terrible response. Not sure what kind of parents you had growing up, but it's a very easy thing to point there as an example or at least to begin there if you had parents that were gracious and gentle with you it made a big difference in how you responded to their rules if you had parents that were harsh and basically said just do it without ever any context of love that made a different reaction in your heart for following their rules I heard Josh McDowell one time say that rules without relationship equal rebellion. To parents, rules without relationship equal rebellion. Now, we can look at our parents. Like I say, it's a good place to start, but that's not where we stop. Let's look at our own hearts. When we want to get something done, how do we handle it? Are we intimidators or are we influencers with A gracious spirit. How do we motivate others? Well, for Rehoboam, the nation divided overnight and the loyalty was completely lost. I think if we can just be honest for a minute, which one of us doesn't give favor? Which one of us doesn't struggle with nepotism? We do, don't we? We give favor to family. We get favor to friends, and there's nothing wrong with that, per se, unless family and friends are doing the wrong thing, and we give favor to them without ever even thinking about what is right. This is where it all goes south. It wasn't a bad thing for Solomon to favor Judah. What was a bad thing was favoring Judah, to that extent, was wrong because it left all all the other tribes get bitter. Rehoboam the same way. Think about uh, the interest of children, of the church, of the ministry, of your business, or even of the interests of God. When bias toward family or friends outweighs doing what is right, then we dishonor the Lord. Jesus said this in this powerful statement in Matthew 10.37. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, there's a lesson for nepotism, isn't there? He who loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's not that we don't love them. It's that we love Christ more. It's that we love Christ most, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with no exceptions. Even when Rehoboam asked for counsel, he kept asking until he heard the counsel he wanted. He got wisdom from the elders, but he ignored it. That's not what he wanted to hear. That didn't stroke his ego. It's not an ego to be a servant. It was an ego for his buddies that he grew up with to say, hey, you let him know who's boss. So here's principle number two. Trying to justify our ego never leads to the satisfaction we seek. I bet the most surprised person that day was Rehoboam. You mean you don't want me to be your king? No, you jerk. Listen to what you just said to everybody. (laughs) Sometimes the person with the greatest blind spot is the person who's doing all the intimidating because they're so used to just having everybody jump when they say something. But when someone finally says, nope, that's as far as we're going, I'm out of here, then all of a sudden they're blindsided. Trying to justify our ego never leads to the satisfaction we seek. It didn't work with Rehoboam. It backfired. It backfired. Well, look at what happened. Verse 18. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. What was he thinking? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll send, they're asking me to lighten their load. I'll, t- I'll tell you what I do. I'll send the guy in charge of forced labor. How will they respond? Well, how do you think they'll respond? They killed him. Was it not plain enough that day they said that we're no longer going to be with you? Rehoboam still didn't get it. Remember uh, Gilligan's Island? Oh, yes, you do. I've seen those episodes so many times. When I was a kid, I could watch the first five seconds, and I could tell you the whole, what the whole episode was going to be. I mean, it's just silly humor. And uh, one of the things, I guess, that was the most humorous was the professor. This guy is so smart, he can make generators out of palm fronds and vaccines out of algae, but he couldn't fix the hole in the boat to get them all home. Sometimes the obvious solutions evade us, don't they? It's obvious what you do. You fix the hole in the boat, and you go home. Think about Jesus' example. Carol Faulkner, please stand up. That's all right. Context is everything. (laughs) This is not the context for your phone. All right, think about Jesus' example. If we think about it, Jesus, he didn't need anybody. Jesus, the one who made the world with a word, could have accomplished his ministry without people. He didn't need people. He came, and he could have just snapped his fingers, boom, everyone's healed. He came, he could have just lifted an eyebrow, twink, and everyone had food. If the goal of Jesus' ministry was perfection, then people clearly got in the way, because they monkeyed it up. And every time he involved the disciples, you know, they threw a wrench in the works. His ministry would have perfectly been carried out without people involved. But Jesus' ministry was not perfection. Jesus' goal was not a perfect ministry. Jesus' goal was people which is why he involved the disciples in the ministry. Jesus never sat on the couch and barked out orders behind the TV. Hey, y'all take out the trash. Did he? He involved them in the process that he initiated of taking out the trash, if you want to use that metaphor. He never cloistered himself in his office and led by sending emails. He was in the trenches with them. He never claimed that his ministry was his ministry, even though it was his ministry. He involved the disciples in the process and they got the understanding that it was their ministry as well. His leadership included relationship. Jesus' leadership included relationship. Listen to Mark 3.14. Mark writes, He appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. So he appointed 12 so that, in other words, here's the purpose, they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach relationship and ministry notice which came first be with him relationship came first jesus invested time with his men from that relationship from the context of that relationship of love of correction of direction he sent them out and once convinced of his love they laid down his life their life for jesus christ Jesus included people in the work r- rather than merely using them for the work. This is huge. Our people, that is, our, those who work with us, if you have some responsibility, those who work under us, it is our people that are always our greatest product. Our children, our grandchildren are not there for us. We are there for them. Our responsibility is to pour into their lives. It is not their responsibility to pour into our lives. This is what Rehoboam didn't see. Rehoboam didn't understand. He thought his servants were there to serve him. The elders say, no, you serve them, and they will serve you. You lay down your life for them first, and they will follow suit. It's, we're talking about a king in a foreign land, but we're also talking about you and me as we head home today. You take the first move. I take the first move of being a servant, and then the response, greater potential for a response of grace. Jesus said this, the bad shepherd flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. The bad shepherd runs away, he flees because he is a hired hand, is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus said That's John 10, 13. Jesus said in that same chapter, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep know my name. They hear my voice. They know me. It's the context of relationship that the sheep follow the shepherd. It's not just because they're scared to death of him. It's the same in all relationships, whether it's leadership, whether it's parenting, whether it's you and me here in our class. A good leader slash Christian is, cares for the life of those around him. A bad leader fleeces the sheep and ultimately abandons them. This is what Rehoboam did. And we can't build a successful family, a successful business, a successful ministry if those who work with us and under us or even over us feel like chopped liver. They've got to be valued. And not just feel valued, but be valued. They need to know we love them, and they will know it. If we do or if we don't, if we're just faking it. Again, Jesus could have snapped his fingers and everyone would have been, the whole ministry would have been taken care of. But instead, he included imperfect people in the process. Here's some examples. The feeding of the 5,000. He included the disciples in that miracle. It wasn't just him doing it all. They were part. He sent the apostles out two by two to go proclaim the very message that he had been sharing. He gave Peter, James, and John special privileges to witness miracles that no one else saw. And in Gethsemane, he specifically requested others to stay with him and comfort him, the Son of God. He involved them, including people in the process, gave them ownership, gave them value, allowed them to to contribute their unique gifts. Jesus never saw people as a tool to accomplish his ministry. The people were the ministry. Rehoboam never got that, but let's say that you and I will, that we don't look at people as those whom we use to get what we want, but rather people, relationships are the goal. They are the goal, just like it was with Christ. It must be the same with us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for the model of Jesus. We've looked at Rehoboam as the king of Judah, but his example is an example to, it's a cautionary tale that we learn from. As he tried to lead through intimidation and the people rebelled, may we learn that lesson with our kids, with our grandkids, with our friends with even ministry people around us in our church. May we lead through love. May we influence others through love and through grace, just as our Lord Jesus did, who, because of his love and laying down his life for the sheep, the sheep are now willing to lay down our lives for him. It's a simple lesson with a tough lifetime assignment. Strengthen us for the task, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. It's good to have you back with us. Well, it's going to be cooler tomorrow. I hope you all have a blessed week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.